This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abraham Goldberg, director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at JMU. And I'm Ryan Ritter, an undergraduate democracy fellow at JMU Civic. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 extremist terrorist attacks on the United States driven by Osama bin Laden. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Philip Zeldiko, who served as the executive director of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, better known as the 9-11 Commission. The commission's landmark report was published in 2004 and provides an authoritative narrative to help the country make sense of a collective mass trauma. As the 9-11 Commission report states, to implement the recommendations will require a government better organized than the one that exists today, with its national security institutions designed more than a half a century ago to win the Cold War. Americans should not settle for incremental ad hoc adjustments to a system created a generation ago for a world that no longer exists. Dr. Zelico is the White Burkett Miller Professor of History at the University of Virginia. He has also served at all levels of American government, including as an elected member of a town school board. He began his professional career as a trial and appellate lawyer in Texas, including work for the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. After returning to graduate school and then teaching for the Navy, he joined the Foreign Service and served as a career diplomat, posted overseas and in Washington, including service on the National Security Council staff for President George H.W. Bush. His PhD is from Tufts University's Fletcher School. Dr. Zelico also directed the 2001 Commission on National Election Reform, chaired by former Presidents Carter and Ford. This work led directly to congressional passage of the bipartisan Help America Vote Act of 2002. He is currently leading the privately sponsored COVID Commission Planning Group. We invite you to join the conversation with us on Twitter and Facebook, at JMU Civic and on Instagram, at JMU Dukes Vote. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Zelico, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 extremist terrorist attacks on the United States driven by Osama bin Laden. I was wondering if you could start by sharing where you were on September 11, 2001, and what do you remember about how that day changed you? Sure. I, um, it was... Uh beautiful Tuesday morning on the whole eastern seaboard of the United States. And um, I was going to work. Uh, I was then uh, directing a research center at the University of Virginia called the Miller Center of Public Affairs. I was also teaching history back then too, and uh, went to work, heard the news. Uh, We actually had a TV running in the Miller Center um, and uh, I was involved in some presentations later that day and was riveted like everyone else was. Um, I uh, um, took maybe a different interest in it because I'd been working on this problem off and on in previous years. And in fact, in 1998 had co-authored a study group report, the lead part of which was published prominently in Foreign Affairs um, called Catastrophic Terrorism, The New Threat, um, in which we act, 
we actually speculated about the possibility of another attack on the World Trade Center as that would potentially be a Pearl Harbor for this generation. Um, that, as I say, that had been published about three years earlier from work that had been done even a year before that. Um, so naturally when this happened, um, the events resonated with me pretty strongly. At that time, I didn't uh, realize how deeply I would, I would end up being involved in these matters, but I knew that I would probably be involved in it somehow. Thank you. You, uh, you served as the executive director, Dr. Zelico, of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, better, better known as the 9-11 Commission. One of the most notable aspects of the 9-11 Commission report is that it was a bipartisan investigation which laid out a common set of facts for policymakers and for the public. Can you please speak to how the commission came about and the processes by which the commission and staff worked to assemble the detailed facts in a nonpartisan manner in a chaotic environment? So the commission came about um, substantially uh, um, through pressure from a combination of members of Congress and victims' families. Uh, the Bush administration was resistant to a commission during 2002, um, I think in part because they, were, they felt overwhelmingly preoccupied with managing the current crisis and um, didn't want to be diverted and distracted by the commission. But, so the, um, but the pressure uh, was very strong, um, led actually by the late Senator John McCain, um, uh, Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman and others working in concert with victims' families. They uh, um, successfully lobbied for and these congressmen eventually enacted the commission at the end of 2002. The uh, um, commission itself was appointed in a highly political way. Uh, the commissioners, the chairman was selected by the president. All the other commissioners were selected by the four uh, party leaders of Congress, majority, minority in both houses. So naturally that was a political process. The commissioners were bipartisan in that sense. The initial chair and vice chair of the commission um, were going to be Henry Kissinger and George Mitchell, both very prominent political figures. Uh, Kissinger almost immediately resigned the post um, when it became clear that he would have to disclose or divest himself of a lot of his uh, business interests. Uh, Mitchell then immediately followed suit and also resigned. They were very fortuitously replaced by a remarkable pair. Um, Tom Kane, the former governor of New Jersey, and Lee Hamilton, a former Democratic congressman from Indiana, who'd been very prominent on foreign affairs issues. Uh, this turned out to be a wonderfully fortuitous choice. I think worked out actually much better than the original Kissinger-Mitchell combination would have worked. Um, Kane, by the way, had, a, had earned a PhD in history at Princeton many, many years earlier, so had a certain sympathy for um, um, conscientious historical study. Um, the, uh, um, the, um, the Bush administration um, made some recommendations to them as to who ought to be the full-time director of the staff. Uh, they rejected those recommendations, and actually Lee Hamilton 
um, uh, picked out me and contacted me to see if I would be interested. Um, I thought about it and said I, I would be. And then uh, he arranged for me to then meet and talk with Tom Kane. Kane and I hit it off right away. And so in a way then that kind of became the directing core. But the decision of Kane and Hamilton to basically become joined at the hip and never allow any daylight to appear between them, then set an example of bipartisanship for the rest of the commissioners. But useful to understand, the commissioners were in a way like the governing board of the operation, but they were part-timers. The commission's work was really done by the staff. So those were the you know, 80 plus full-time employees, which I led. And um, so in a way I was sort of the um, executive officer running this operation, which then had three offices, two in Washington and one in New York City, operating for, the, for a year and a half and put together um, very quickly. So you're, I, I, I call that out because your question quite rightly called attention to the bipartisanship, and that's true. But the staff was not bipartisan, the staff was nonpartisan. It was a unitary staff. This is different, by the way, than committee staffs on Capitol Hill, for example. So it's, it's worth noticing that. This is a unitary staff. I was very insistent on this. And um, that did not have a party identification, did not align themselves with one or another commissioner with a couple of informal exceptions. And, um, and the staff then worked up through a hierarchy that led to the front office that I directed along with my deputy, who was a former Hamilton staffer and the general counsel, who was a former assistant attorney general in the Clinton administration. Um, and then we took our advice from Kane and Hamilton who represented the commission as a whole. So that you then had um, a nonpartisan staff um, reporting to a bipartisan commission. Um, I go into this a little bit because I think it helps explain one of the reasons why the commission was successful is the, uh, the kind of the partisan cleavages did not then run all the way down through the staff work. The staff work was organized in a strongly integrated way right from the start. Um, and uh, um, I was very fortunate uh, to be blessed with a really outstanding staff and um, the, that was able to do a um, prodigious amount of work in a relatively short period of time. In addition to the main report that most Americans, many Americans are aware of, um, the staff also published uh, four other monographs that go into some specialized topics like terrorist finance, terrorist travel, um, the four, the what happened on the four flights, and uh, the information sharing between law enforcement and the intelligence community. Can I ask a quick follow-up to that? Because I think this differentiation between nonpartisan staff um, between and not being bipartisan is instructive for today. And we're going to ask a question about today. Can you speak more to where these 80 nonpartisan staffers came from and, and how you determined that they would do this work in a nonpartisan 
way as the director during a politically volatile time? Well, it was a combination of people applying and then people I, uh, I reached out to recruit. And I recruited a very diverse set of people with different skill sets. So you'll find, you would find people on the staff, a number of whom are, were veteran lawyers, some veteran Hill staffers, uh, but also you know, PhDs in history, um, people who were deeply seasoned veterans of the intelligence community and who had, have been a professional intelligence analysts for much of their career. So to give you an illustration, um, the team that generally studied the history of Al-Qaeda, which by the way was that we decided right away would be a focus, that we would not just basically study the US government, we would actually study the enemy. And so the general team that looked into the history of Al-Qaeda was headed by a former deputy director of intelligence at the CIA. But then there was a sub-team that worked on the specifics of the plot itself that was headed by a former assistant US attorney who actually had been a prosecutor in previous terrorism investigations. Or um, we had a substantial staff that was looking into what happened on the morning of the attacks and the emergency response that was headed by a former attorney general of the state of New Jersey, a man named John Farmer, and, and so on. Um, different, so you, you, I just, you can get a sense of the eclectic uh, mix of people. Um, many, but usually these were people who um, had um, real experience. So they actually understood the subjects that they were uh, investigating. They often were people with government experience, uh, including some people who'd served, for instance, in the Clinton administration. But because, um, because of the way we provided strong central direction um, um, and uh, a real substantive work plan that helped unify people, and then we had a process in which we did the work that was very collegial, often painfully so, where we would spend hour after hour haggling over the wording of paragraphs in staff statements or in the final report, but to get to the point where everyone agreed that the material had been rendered fairly. But see, then that, that meant that everyone on the staff felt they had been heard and that they all felt, um, um, represented by the material that came out of this rather than my taking their material and just rewriting it according to my druthers and then simply presenting them with it as a fait accompli and making them live with it. I would sometimes rewrite things and along with a historian advisor whom I recruited to help uh, the late Ernest May from Harvard, I would rewrite passages, but then if I had rewritten stuff, I would go back to them, like, here's my proposed rewrite. Let's work through this to be sure you're good with this. You feel that this still represents the work we've all been doing together. As I say, this is a, this was a very painful and time-consuming process, but it, it paid dividends in the end. Uh, you'll see that the people who read the commission report We'll see that it's written, designed to be written in a way that is not dumbed down, but is also very accessible. It respects the reader, but it also will meet the reader halfway. If you're willing to read the report, you'll see it's not full of technical jargon or other things that are designed to push people away, but you have to, it's, it's also not dumbed down and bowdlerized, you know, into uh, its, um, 
it's straight, um, but accessible. And, and we found actually that if you respect the reader and ask them to meet you halfway, they will. And they, and millions did. So, um, but it was very important then that the uh, report adopts very much a, an intensely tight factual approach um, that um, rarely gives into interpretive flights. Um, it basically lays out uh, the factual record of what happened and invites the readers to form their own judgments as to what to infer from that. Rather than, you know, adding the sentence at the end, so you see now this person should be held to blame. It just tells you what people did and why they did what they did and allows the reader to come to those judgments. And it's interesting, uh, the report in that sense is a bit like a Rorschach blot, is all sorts of people, of course, then just cherry-picked and reacted to it according to their lives. But uh, what remains then still is, the, is a relatively durable factual record of what happened that then provides the foundation for continuing discussion, debate, and argument. I immediately, one of the examples that came to mind um, is... Um, just in the explanation of um, Vice President Dick Cheney um, giving shoot-down orders and it not going through um, Secretary Rumsfeld and different interpretations then being placed by the fighters and two different sets of fighters. Um, and, and so there was no sort of analytical judgment about that. It's just here, you know, here's the timeline, here's the time stamps of when the meetings are and here's who said what. And then the reader is then left to sort of draw conclusions um, about about the different actors and and whether or not they exercised authority or, or oversight in, in the proper way. Right. No, actually, we worked really hard on that particular passage because we had clashing. We had different evidence about it. Different people had different recollections. There was actually even some conflicts in the written records um, and logs. And what, but what we, and there was another case like this where, um, you know, there were, uh, you couldn't, there was no way to simply say, this is the right answer. Um, what you could just be in is just be honest with the reader. I'd say, here's what we know. Here's what the evidence is. Here's the evidence on this. And but give give that to people, and then they can sort it out as well as we can. Um, as to what the it, it, by the way, it didn't matter um, because the um, the the planes were not in position to shoot anything down anyway. Um, but uh, it became a little point of controversy, and um, it you know the way we sorted it, uh, uh, to this day, I'm not a hundred percent sure what what actually happened. People, uh, well-meaning people in good faith actually had confused and differing recollections of what happened, but it didn't, it didn't turn out to matter. Um, there are a couple of other things like that, by the way, in the report where we just have clashes like that and rather, and, uh, and we just give people our, you know, most honest appraisal of, you know, how we can sort it out as best we can, but then rather than obscuring that problem from the reader, we just, you know, let them share in the, here's the, here's the clashing evidence we have, and there we are. 
So I wonder if you can share from your perspective how agencies and policymakers have implemented the findings of the report. What do you think were the greatest successes and what work has yet to be accomplished from the recommendations? Yeah, uh, um, I think the uh, Congress came out of its summer recess in August of 2004 to immediately hold hearings on the report and act on the recommendations, which was gratifying. And um, Congress then passed uh, legislation at the end of 2004, um, after the uh, elections, that uh, did enact many of our recommendations. But um, there was a lot of misunderstanding about that. I think um, from a purely bureaucratic point of view, like did you recommend the creation of this or that office? Um, For example, the commission is generally credited with the creation, with the consolidation of the intelligence community and the creation of a director of the national intelligence. It is true that the commission report provided the impetus for the enactment of that. The actual design of that office, though, actually is not the design we recommended in our report. It's a design that was the preference of the Congress in uh, embattled negotiations uh, in the Congress and with the Bush administration, especially with Secretary Rumsfeld. So um, though I think in general, some sort of movement towards better management of the intelligence community was an appropriate recommendation of the report. The one bureaucratic innovation for which we can take complete credit is the creation of the National Counterterrorism Center or NCTC, which is not a well-known organization, but it's been a very effective organization and worked, has worked extremely well, at least in the following 10 years to um, do a lot of very useful and constructive things in organizing the counterterrorism work. Um, but the um, main point I wanna make to you is that the commission, the effectiveness of the commission's report should not mainly be judged by whether this or that bureaucratic innovation happened. The main um, significance of the commission report um, is, which is, is more intangible and had many policy effects that are also more intangible in that it basically helped people understand and make sense of what had happened and therefore make sense of how to think about the whole episode and what should be done. Um, In deep ways, if you you deeply understand a story, that understanding of the story shapes all sorts of things that you do about that story. Some of them cannot neatly be pinned into bureaucratic terms. I mean, for instance, um, the whole understanding that a lot of this had to do with the rise of uncontested sanctuaries in which thousands of terrorists could organize with impunity in part of the world. That whole sanctuary concern was was such a strong part of the narrative that it then easily carried over into an understanding of how to think about these threats in the future. Or the fact that terrorist finance played such a trivial role in the attack but terrorist travel played a very large role. That then had a very large effect on basically getting people to pay attention to travel issues, which has also had lots of beneficial consequences. So you see, you begin to see what I mean is the way people understand the story correctly, 
it frames the whole way they look at issues of concern and how they think about the future in ways that can't neatly be traced bureaucratically, but are nonetheless very powerful. It's also just fundamentally important when people suffer a huge collective mass trauma to have some strong fundamental understanding of what happened that um, helps them come to terms with that mass trauma in a deep sense as a society and politically. And it's hard to, to measure the impact of that, but it's, it's, it's large. And I think in this case, the commission was able to do that work um, more successfully perhaps than some past commissions convened to examine traumas um, were able to do. This is one of the reasons why right now I'm leading a, plan, a national planning group working on a possible pandemic commission. And though the, I was, it was not my idea, but a number of foundations that are interested in such a commission have recruited me to help lead this planning effort. But partly it's again to try to help make sense of a, of a huge collective trauma in ways that are uh, constructive. Now, Dr. Zalico, you already touched on this uh, quite robustly in your last uh, answer, but just to narrow in a bit, from your perspective, what effect did the report have on public opinion about national security and the nature of threats of terrorism? I think um, um, in general, uh, of course, right after the attacks and for a period after that, there is a sense that the enemy is large and coed and everywhere. Uh, it's very difficult now for Americans in, in your generation to really recover the sense of anxiety that was pervasive in the months after 9-11. Then there was a, the anthrax episode a few weeks after that. Um, and actually that anxiety was ambient all through the society. And I think actually expresses itself culturally in the popularity of zombie movies and Walking Dead. It's, it's all ways, kind of cultural expressions about inchoate enemies among us that get cultural outlets. But um, this pervasive anxiety was at its height actually at the top of the government and had very powerful and in many ways unfortunate effects um, in the following year. What the commission report actually did is it helped people get that inchoate anxiety into perspective and a little bit of proportion. Uh, but for example, if you go through, the, you could get an impression that all Muslims are dangerous. Well, no, they're not. Um, and to its credit, right away, the Bush administration tried to steer people away from seeing this as a war between the West and Islam, which is Al-Qaeda's narrative. Actually, it's the terrorist narrative. And the more, the more people in the West kind of get sucked into that narrative, they're playing into the terrorist's hands. Now, that's the way they want to divide the world. Uh, but when, when you just go through the detail of the report and you kind of see how isolated these groups were and the kind of chaotic uh, environment of state failure and tumult, in which these groups could thrive, whether in um, the Sudan initial, Afghanistan, Sudan, then back to Afghanistan. It, um, you begin to get, 
it's impossible to read the report and not gain a somewhat more nuanced sense of the Muslim world and also a sense of the extreme and alienated role these people have in it, which then help you keep from overgeneralizing that you know, Islam is the danger. That, that's an illustration of kind of the way in which a, a report like this helps to kind of get things in proportion. It begins to make the government actions intelligible so that, okay, uh, I now kind of understand these different institutions, kind of what they do, what they didn't do then, what they need to do now. And it takes an environment full of anxiety already and, and somehow help people come to terms with it. Have policymakers and agencies, in your opinion, learned the right lessons of history for addressing challenges from emerging and changing threats to national security? Can you speak to how policymakers can create or reimagine institutions that are more responsive to complex and ever-evolving threats? Um, it's a great question. Uh, and because it's, it's very much raised actually by the current pandemic. To, for your listeners to think about this, the United States fundamentally has a national security structure, a national security state that is overwhelmingly the product of the years between 1940 and 1960. Like 85% of the DNA of the American national security state stems from those, those, those 20 years, um, maybe more. So it's, you have this, uh, indeed, before 1940, we didn't know what the term national security was not even in public usage. Uh, the, it comes into public usage at the beginning of the 1940s. And, um, and the whole state apparatus of the United States is just very different. So you have this mid 20th century creation that then seems vaguely suited somehow to preparations for a possible World War III. That's the dominant paradigm of the Cold War era that ends in 1990, 1990. After 1990, you basically have these legacy institutions that are kind of lurching and drifting into a variety of situations for which they were never designed. So the 21st century has been ushering, I believe, as part of a, a fundamentally different era in world history that's characterized by the digital age, by actually I, I bet revolutions in biotechnology as well that we're actually seeing playing out right now, and a number of really deep social changes that are presenting issues that are increasingly transnational in nature. The issue, and so, and we've seen this now in convulsive crises, the 9-11 crisis, transnational origin, the global financial crisis of the late 2000s, the pandemic that we're going through right now. You see these, these convulsive transnational crises and these mid 20th century institutions are very ill-suited. The pandemic has confronted a set of public health institutions that in the United States are basically the state of the art of the first Cleveland administration. Not even as modern as the second Cleveland administration, really the first Cleveland administration. And uh, right, and, and um, the defense, in, and so this system has just been palpably tested, right? 
So then the challenge then is, um, especially for people to retain uh, their confidence and faith in what government can do is that the institutions then need to adapt. By the way, as they did in the previous century, when the great issues of the early 20th century were all the issues presented by urbanization, the rise of industrial societies, uh, the rise of large conglomerates, all of that, and then these industrial wars now you have the early 21st century, which is presenting us with very different kinds of challenges, environmental and all the rest, and institutions that were designed from a different era. So the challenge, and I think it's an exciting challenge uh, for uh, younger people, mm -hmm. um, is actually to think deeply about how these institutions need to adapt and be reinvented so that they're uh, more relevant and appropriate to this different age. It's not really so much a matter of, quote, the size of government or even the amount of money spent. The problem in a way is always how to redirect things from large legacy investments that have entrenched interest groups defending them, but they're increasingly irrelevant to society's problems into uh, new areas of investment and new areas of activity uh, that don't yet have natural constituents. And the, the uh, aftermath of the 9-11 attacks was one such occasion. Um, the institutional adaptation out of that was, I would give, I would say, okay. Actually, the most, as I say, some of the most interesting institutions are things no one has ever heard of, like the NCTC, which from a cost point of view is trivial in comparison to the size of the, the, um, the, big, the, main, the main budgets. Um, mostly the government, including the national security side, kept doing what it was it had already been doing. So a, ra a rather small fraction of that energy gets re-diverted to these other things, though a lot of the energy and activity of high-level officials was focused in this way, and then gets diverted and distracted too by the follow-on wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, which in significant ways were unrelated to the original problem. I, I often think that FEMA is an underappreciated institution because it's designed to be responsive to, to natural events. And um, I'm not sure if you've ever been in like their their situation room, their response room, but essentially, you know, it's it's a pretty lean, small organization that then brings together the relevant expertise to respond to a specific incident. And it seems like that would be a good model for many other institutions um, of of government, where you can bring together the right expertise, liaise with Congress, get you know get the um, get the authority that you need to act. Um, and then be responsive to situations as they arise. Actually, FEMA is a very interesting case. And actually, FEMA has been pulled a little bit into the pandemic issues um, a, a bit here and there. The, uh, um, I mean, the whole Department of Homeland Security was a new creation that came out of 9-11. Uh, FEMA was a, uh, a creation that built on some older things. FEMA had its great trial in Hurricane Katrina in 2005, a test uh, on which people don't give it a very high grade. 
Um, but coming, it, it's interesting then to see how um, FEMA struggled to get through that early test. And it would be interesting to look at how FEMA has developed since that. My impression from afar is that there's been a lot of churn and efforts to adapt and improve FEMA in the last 15 years. Um, and that it's a much more effective and functional agency than it was back then. I don't know that to be true. That's a distant impression. But if so, that, that would be an example of institutional adaptation to new threats. Um, you know, the climate, climate change has been actually creating a lot of stresses on FEMA in different ways, as it has, by the way, on other agencies people don't study very much, like CAL FIRE which is the, the incredible agency in California that, does the, that manages the firefighting, which itself is quite a story. Um, so as we are, we're, we're speaking now with you in August of 2021. And as you're talking, we are wondering why we do not have a 9-11 style commission related to uh, the January 6, 2021 um, insurrection and violent attacks on Capitol Hill. Um, although there is a House Select Committee that is conducting hearings and calling witnesses, um, what what lessons might be learned um, and and applied to investigations of events of trauma as you as you uh, as you mentioned earlier um, that that deeply impact the United States? And I wonder if you could also speak to how important it was for there to be a bipartisan commission with nonpartisan staff relative to what we're seeing today in terms of the January 6th investigation. The January 6th commission case, the failure of that is interesting. And people involved in that did talk to me about this. And, um, you know, uh, one thing to single out, uh, a, a quite telling difference in the story um, can be captured in the figure of the late Senator John McCain of Arizona. You remember when I told you the story of how the 9-11 Commission came into existence and I explained that actually the Bush administration had been kind of resistant to it, either for good or bad reasons, you can argue. And that one way in which that resistance was overcome actually was by this Republican Senator, you see, John McCain, who uh, then, uh, who. Uh, had quite a lot of influence in his, in his caucus and then united with Democrats basically to drive this idea with some other supportive senators like Susan Collins of Maine and, um, and then work, uh, working with the victims' families to lobby this against the Bush administration. Now, you ask yourself in the creation of the January 6th commission, um, who... Uh, who was that um, powerful, uniting Republican political figure, right? And then the answer is that no. Um, there's Liz Cheney attempting to play that role and failing. Um, now that tells you uh, that this is partly uh, a message about the changed Republican party, about the, the widening and more bitter and toxic gulf of partisanship between um, the year 2021 and the year 2002. Um, it also uh, is revealing because the January 6th episode is an intensely political episode. It was actually an, 
uh, an, a violent effort to uh, change the result of the election. The 9-11 episode was a foreign attack. So you could say in some ways easier for the parties to unite around investigating a foreign attack than unite around investigating a domestic attack in which supporters of one of the parties of the Republican Party's president at the time had led the attack. So uh, you then get a situation where how are we going to form a commission in which half the commissioners are picked by the leaders of the party, that, even though the, those two leaders themselves have very complex and conflicted relationships to this whole story, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. But the bottom line was um, that they fundamentally decided that it was not in the party's interest to have this commission. And that was that. So the House Select Committee is therefore, you know, the, okay, well, if we're not gonna have a bipartisan commission, we'll have a partisan congressional committee do this. And, you know, you can see if you'd like that better. Now, that doesn't mean that the congressional committee will do a bad job. It'll either do a good job or a bad job. It'll depend on the quality of the work. And ultimately the quality of the work will have to stand for itself and they'll still have the same challenges about how to organize a staff that does a quality of work that will stand the test of time. Often partisan efforts don't meet that test, but not always. And there's also the question of public acceptance, you know, given how polarized the public is, um, you know, there's there's going to be, unlike the 9-11 Commission report, it's, it's going to face those partisan hurdles in terms of who is willing to believe and come to agreement around some shared set of facts. It seems that it's that that part is has more hurdles or challenges. It does. Uh, some of the same things that have to do with uh, continuing debates over the election itself, which are um, kind of an open book. I don't need to tell, I don't need to talk about my opinions about this. This is a, um, this is a very clear story with pictures and uh, I don't need to, I don't need to read it aloud to anybody. <laughs> the, the concern is that what the 9-11 Commission does, and I'll go back to a response that you gave us earlier in this conversation about coming to terms with mass trauma, understanding the story, and, and having a shared set of facts. And so without having that in January 6th, and as Kara mentioned, with, with a public that's going to perhaps not accept um, the outcome of what is being investigated right now, that, that in 20 years we could be looking back at January 6th with very different versions of what happened and without, without something that we can point to with some authority that outlines facts and, and really, as you said earlier with the 9-11 Commission, uh, limits the amount of, of, of perspective and instead just gives people an opportunity, as you said, meet them halfway, meet the reader halfway and let them form their own opinions. It's, it's just really troubling to think that we're not going to have something like that and what was an attack on our capital in our democratic system. Well, we may still, though. Um, 
a combination of this congressional report and other work, depending on the quality of the work, may actually establish a reasonably authoritative record um, for what happened. By the way, there are still, as probably all of you know, there are conspiracy theories about 9-11 that are very much still out there. Um, but it is true that those, that those conspiracy theories then have to confront uh, a mass of, um, of documentation that's been authoritatively organized and presented, by the way, not just by the 9-11 Commission. One of the peculiarities of the conspiracy theories is that they tend to go off actually on various theories about, the, uh, about engineering issues and, uh, and things like that. Um, and so actually there was, a, there's a huge multi-volume study conducted by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, that spent way more money than we did because of, of the engineering costs uh, that at exhaustive length went through all those issues. Um, and um, which actually then spawned a grassroot and grassroots anti-conspiracy theory movement, uh, actually led in a way by writers for the magazine Popular Mechanics who got so pissed off by some of the conspiracy theory arguments, they just decided to write counter, like debunking books themselves because that made them so angry as people who really respect proper engineering work, which, in which we had kind of had no involvement at all. Um, but the point though, is that um, if you put a, a strong authoritative record in front of people, in front of basically open-minded, conscientious people, that is fundamentally a healthy thing. And people will increasingly turn to and rely on that. But you do have to do that hard work and it has to be done in, in, in a meticulous, rigorous way. Um, that can still be done for January 6th. Um, it can be done for other things, including the pandemic, but it's not automatic that it will be done. Um, journalistic accounts on one side or the other, you know, tend to be discounted as, well, that's this opinion versus that opinion. That's why I think over time, having a strong authoritative record that's carefully put together that, you know, open-minded people look at and See, one of the reasons that the grassroots movement arose to attack the conspiracy theorists was because those people were just honest. They were just kind of curious and honestly interested in this. And they got really mad about the conspiracy theories because they could read the engineering studies for themselves. And they got really mad at the way that that was being misinterpreted. And no one had to prompt them or lead them to do that is but you have you people had done the work to lay the information out there, um, and there's so much more. I mean, uh, I mean, the FBI did uh, enormous work in like going through the wreckage and I mean, recovering all the forensic evidence and so forth. Um, and you know, we just scratched the surface of some of that in the 9/11 Commission report. But it, it's interesting. So back to your concern about January 6th. I'll just uh, reiterate the bottom line is it's still possible to provide an, uh, a careful and authoritative record of what happened. And that burden should be met by someone one way or another over time. History is really, doing good history is really important, but doing good history is really hard. Uh, I've just published a book earlier this year on the first world war 
for example, on an episode, an absolutely critical episode at a turning point in World War I that actually had been dramatically understudied for generations. Unfortunately, my work this year, in combination with the work by a British historian that's also just come out this year, and, and some German work, has uh, really finally um, bring to light some crucial stuff about the history of this episode, which occurred more than 100 years ago. So um, really good history is hard to do and can take time, but it's absolutely essential. Dr. Zelico, we would be remiss if we also didn't take this opportunity to ask about election reform, given that you also served on the private bipartisan commission on national election reform, chaired by former presidents Carter and Ford. Uh, the work of the commission led to congressional passage of the Help America Vote Act of 2002. And as you know, we are presently in a moment when election administration and voting access and rights are central to partisan power struggles. So I was wondering, in your view, what are the most pressing challenges for election reform? And what do you see as a path forward for ensuring safe, fair and accessible elections and confidence in them? Okay, so um, that's a great question. And thank you for remembering that earlier work. So to help put this in perspective of the voting issues in 2001 and the voting issues now 20 years later. So 2001, you'd have basically in the, in the presidential election of 2000, you had really decrepit voting systems in significant parts of the United States. Um, the administration of voting is very much a state and county affair. And it varies depending on what state and counties invest in the fundamental systems. And so what became the Tory, you had a very close election in 2000, and it was closest of all in the state of Florida. And the state of Florida had a really decrepit, almost comically bad um, elect election system. And in a, very, in a super close election. So then after that, when uh, the controversy was resolved and uh, after that controversy, after the, as the dust settled in early 2001, um, these two former presidents, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, Democrat and Republican, got together and said, let's, let's form a commission to try to modernize the American election system so this doesn't happen again. And uh, they then uh, asked me to direct that to direct that commission to in 2001, which I did um, back when I was at the, and I was at the University of Virginia then. And so we ran this uh, Carter Ford Commission and everyone said this commission's gonna fail because man, the politics of this were very, very bitter at the time. You can imagine um, in 2001, no one could possibly agree on anything to do with election reform. But the Carter Ford Commission did agree. And its report basically said that we need to have federal stand, we need to have some federal standards and federal support for all these state and counties to modernize their basic election systems. Let's push uh, um, billions of dollars into that and then do that with a federal entity called the Election Assistance Commission that would set some general standards of best practices for just kind of how to run the systems. Um, it was interesting that, that that bill passed. It passed in 2002 and the coalition that passed it was an interesting coalition. 
The coalition that passed it were both Republicans and Democrats with the bill being opposed by the extremists in both parties. Hmm. So, um, I mean, for instance, in one committee, the House Judiciary Committee, but the chairman, the Republican chairman of the committee was opposed to the bill and the Democratic ranking member of that committee was opposed to the bill. Um, a man named John Conyers of Michigan and Jim Sensenbrenner and John Conyers both opposed. But when the bill came to the floor in the House, there was a solid centrist majority in both parties that supported it. The bill was supported by President Bush in the White House. It was supported by congressional leaders like Steny Hoyer in the House. It was supported by the legendary civil rights leader, John Lewis of Georgia, who said it was the most important bill since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That bipartisan centrist majority passed the bill. And you know what? It's, it, uh, some of you, you've heard the phrase provisional ballots. You've heard of what a provisional ballot is. This bill created the institution of provisional ballots. Actually, a, a fascinating story. It adopted a reform that had been pioneered in Washington state. And the reform was recommended to the commission by a former U.S. Senator, Republican, named Slade Gordon, the late Slade Gordon, a terrific man, by the way. And Gorton recommended the provisional ballot system to us, even though in the election of 2000, provisional ballots had defeated Gorton. He had lost his Senate seat in significant part because of the provisional ballot institution. Yet he recommended that he thought it was the right thing to do. He didn't like the opponent who beat him. <laughs> um, but he was nonetheless recommended that reform to our commission because he thought it was the right thing to do. And then that became a national standard. That rather than turning people away from the polls, you kind of take their ballot and then check to see if they are properly registered to vote, but just didn't show up at the right polling place or something innocent like that, which then helped address lots of long lines and bitterness and things like that. Now, flash forward 20 years. I believe that we would not have gotten through the 2020 election if we had not had the modernized, somewhat more modernized systems that were bankrolled in 2002. It is true that 20 years later, these systems now, you know, maybe some of them can use some refreshing. It is true we still have the same, some arguments, basically Democrats clamoring for more ballot access Republicans then making arguments for ballot integrity. These are old positions. They were there in 2002. Um, um, and you can, uh, both sides um, present their positions in extreme ways, um, fraudulent elections versus voter suppression. You then really just have to get into the details. Um, one of the troubling, I actually think there is a constructive agenda for uh, updating and modernizing the election systems, again, and uh, worth doing and worth looking at every generation or so. And the role of the Election Assistance Commission could be very useful. What I noticed this time, though, is that um, on the Republican side, there it's being driven by a narrative that is substantially false. 
even though some of their concerns are fair concerns, the concerns are being pushed by this false narrative. That is a, a very toxic narrative. Um, they're also doing things to try to politicize the administration of elections into the state legislatures in ways that are potentially quite, da quite dangerous. And they're trying to deprofessionalize election administration so that parties can get the election out, make it easier for parties to get the election outcomes they want. This is actually not very constructive. It's like, you know, if you didn't like Jerry, if you thought gerrymandering was the right thing to do, let's see if we can do some more things. But if you, I think actually a group of dispassionate Americans could sit down from both parties and go through a lot of this and actually come to a broad area of agreement on things that could usefully be done. Um, I mean, for instance, back in 2002, um, we had a real debate about whether to, you know, have same-day voter registration, which, you know, and there, there are actually decent arguments, both pro and con, with respect, you know, on how you do voter registration. Concerns about voter integrity are not ridiculous concerns, though some of the arguments being used to press them in the context of 2020 are ridiculous. So, question, you know, could you come up with some centrist ground of possible reform? Yes, I believe. Um, can we do that in the current political climate? I don't know. Your, your commitment to public service truly is inspiring. And I think that will be the case for our listeners. And, and I do want to thank you for the many ways in which you've served the communities in which you've lived, as well as, as our country and the world. We have now been doing the Democracy Matters podcast for about two years and we've asked uh, a final question of all of our guests that I'm going to pose to you. And, and I can only imagine how you're going to um, unpeel this question. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, but I, will, I do have an answer to this question. Um, I actually think that the best way to uh, strengthen democracy is to help make sure that democratic governance works. Hmm. Works. That is, the it has to be a system of governance that gets practical things done day in and day out. That's uh, the key. Uh, is, um, so most people then get into big arguments about processes. I, my big concern actually is with the substance of the governance. It's the substance of the work. It's competence. I think that the, um, the greatest danger to democratic governance is incompetent governance. Mm. Um, it's um, in, when incompetent governance, unprofessional governance, that then begins to erode people's, and then what? Then that gets complicated by the processes, and sometimes the issues of competence are undermined by the processes, but sometimes not. Um, you you do need a pro. You do need to hear. And this school board's an excellent example of this. You do need to listen to the parents. They will not have one view, but you both need to hear them and be seen to be hearing. And you need to think about what they're saying and take that into account. 
as to what can, you know, what can people tolerate? And then how can you work with that, respecting some of those concerns and try to come up with something that makes practical sense? My own belief is that if you listen to people and then try to do things that are practical, you can usually, maybe not always, but usually you can carry a crucial coalition with you on that because most people just want practical solutions to problems. And the one way to get over partisan divides is to get people working together on an actual concrete problem. You know, Democrats and Republicans may disagree about many things, but they do want the garbage collected. And if there's some reason the garbage isn't being collected, they can talk about that. Like, you know, right? Now, the, the more you actually are getting into practical problem solving, the more you actually get into the details of what's required to solve the problems. And usually these details don't come in partisan colorations or not so, you know, not so much. So actually, uh, and I think that's where government meets its great test. If you look at where democratic governance fails and breaks down, it's because a lot of people conclude that it no longer works. So I, uh, in contrast to a lot of other commentators, I really tend to emphasize issues of competence and I'm actually troubled by certain trends in the declining competence of American governments. Mm -hmm. uh, I've written a little bit about this here and there, um, but that's not where the dominant commentary is right now. And so, but that's why I thought I would really stress that theme with you and answer your question. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does this indication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.